Welcome to the Ask Brian Podcast Radio Show, where you'll hear from some of the most successful founders and CEOs of businesses and startups, sharing their best advice for success, and even some stories on how their mistakes actually make them even more successful. Now, here are your hosts, Brian and Tracy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You're listening to the Ask Brian Radio Show on KTS World 1, 98.1 FM. And for all those out there, we do have some serious news before. There was an 8.1 earthquake today in New Zealand. 8.1. Now, that's pretty big. So that's the only reason why I'm doing that. I've never heard of an 8.1. I'm sure there have been, but that's pretty big. There's also a tsunami watch, you know, everywhere around the world. Tahiti, Hawaii, and all those other places. I'm sure they'll be fine, but just want to let everybody know. You are listening to the Ask Brian radio show, and the E in Ask Brian does stand for empathy. So we're empathizing with all the people regarding the earthquake and regarding the possible tsunami watches. And for those of you who have never listened to the Ask Brian radio show, just go over some ground rules so everybody understands what's going on. Ask Brian is a business channel. We provide information by providing either startups or CEOs of startups or people that are teaching a business lesson to others on the Ask Brian radio show each week. Ask Brian is spelled A-S-K-B-R-I-E-N, and everybody asks, why do you spell Brian with an E? Because when I went to school, all my friends were B-R-Y-A-N or I-A-N. I never heard of an E-N unless I was talking to bloody old Irish, O'Brien, O'Brien, and O'Brien. So therefore, we wanted to know why, 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 why is Brian spelled with an E? And our engineer, which begins with an E, plus the empathy is one of the two reasons. So, without any further ado, <laughs> engineer, why, why, oh, why do they start with an E? Well, I'll tell you why, Brian. There's a number of words that have to do with the Ask Brian radio show that kind of like, you know, it's the theme of our show. And you did say empathy, so you did take that out, which is great. So we got one covered. We do have uh, effort because everybody here gives nothing but 110% effort on what they do. Uh, one of my personal favorites happens to be the engineer one because you can't run the show without the engineer. That's me. And you didn't take it from me this time. So he did show me some well, empathy I today. Well, one because you weren't listening. <laughs> we have artificial intelligence, and artificial intelligence will be getting rid of the engineer any day now. So it was <laughs> nice knowing you. Great to have you on. See ya. <laughs> Oh, man. And the other ones we we have are excellence because everybody here exudes nothing but excellence in what they do. And then uh, our experts because everybody on the Aspirine radio show is always an expert in what they do. And we have two more. Oh, yeah, that's right. We have enthusiasm and go for it. Everybody gets Yes, indeed. <laughs> are we ready to... Rock and roll. We are ready to rock and roll. All right. Before we go without any further ado, today's show is a very special show. We have a great, great guest, and I'm going to let Tracy, <laughs> my co-host, introduce this enormous, fantastic, excitable, great guest. Tracy. So, okay, our guest today is Brian, host of the Ask Brian <laughs> who is enthusiastic an expert, and he is excited to be interviewed by me, your co- other co-host of the Ask Brian Radio Show, Tracy DeFord. I am an expert yeah. in sarcasm. I'm an expert in sarcasm. Yes. <laughs> well, I thought it would be great to interview you today, Brian, because, you know, just to really give people a true behind-the-scenes look at who you really are. 
No one really knows, but okay. <laughs> I know it is, it is. You hide your mystique very well. But today, we're going to go behind the scenes of the Ask Brian radio show, and we're going to have conversation with each other about each other. And I think it's going to be fascinating. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a true introvert. No, I did not know that, and I don't think anyone would believe you. And we are supposed <laughs> to be speaking honestly on this show. So please don't start out by lying. <laughs> well, you know that my, my personal trait is I am a lawyer, so. Yes. Oh, I forgot about that. So actually, that's part of your profession. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> no, I have a huge respect for uh, lawyers. So let me start with my first question. Tell us why and what was the pivotal moment when you decided to become an attorney? Well, actually, that's going to be a little personal, and I'm, but I'm going to tell it to you. This is just the beginning of personal distress. <laughs> <laughs> so I was eight years old. You know, I'm sure by eight years old that Patty knew he was going to be an engineer and you knew you were going to be in the podcast industry. When I was eight years old. I knew I was going to be in the radio business. I didn't know I was going to be in the radio business, but that's when you asked me a question. This is all you. Yeah, but Mickey Mouse doesn't count, okay? Anyway, uh, what happened was, I have to be careful not to go too depth and fact, but essentially my family lost their inheritance through another sibling, and the lawyer they hired received quite a bit of money and didn't do anything. And I said, that's never going to happen again. And I'm going to be out there fighting for people so that they're never in that situation again. So I always take the position of the, of the will guy. I always take the position of, hey, I want to help people out. I don't want people to be taken advantage of. I don't want somebody to get a contract and, hey, I'm going to pay you $100,000 and don't pay you $100,000. That's not fair. That's the same thing with here. My parents, my, my father lost out on millions of dollars at a time when millions was worth a lot more than it is today. And I said, never again. And so I decided I'm going to be a lawyer. And I did. Oh, okay. So are you sure that it wasn't the part of the story where it said that he made a lot of money and he didn't do a lot? Are you sure that wasn't the reason that he decided to become a lawyer? <laughs> no, that's, that, that, that's the part of the podcast where I pay a lot of money and get nothing out of it. <laughs> okay. So you went to law school. So you... You went, when you made your decision to go to your under get your undergraduate, you knew that was your trajectory then to become a lawyer. So that's another interesting point. So when I went to law school, I was taken had taken AP classes in high school and was copying my class in history and, and uh, those classes. And so I wanted to be major in poli sci and history. And my mother said, "No, you won't." <laughs> and I said, "What do you mean? Oh. No, you won't." My decision. And she said, "Well, do you want any help?" for college? I said, yes. They said, well, then you need to go to college and get a discipline. Something that if you decide not to go to law school or you don't want to go to law school or your grades aren't there, that you have an alternative to fall back on, you need a discipline. You like business, so why don't you look into business? So I became an accounting major. So are you a certified public accountant and an attorney? I'm certified, but not not an accountant. (laughs) No. (laughs) To become certified unless I'm in a psych ward, to get certified, you have to go through two years of training as an accountant. And I was going to get a job in the accounting field, and one of the areas that I would have to do is I would have to count, and this is not being sarcastic or facetious, I would have to count cans of paint for companies like Sherwin-Williams, etc. And I said, I'm not going to sit there in the back room counting paint for two years so I can become an accountant. I said, get me out of here. And I had had applied to law schools earlier, and I just said, like, I think I lasted, like, six hours in a job. 
And then I was right on an airplane from Buffalo, New York, to San Diego to start law school. The same. And so where, so where did you go to law school? In San Diego, I went to California Western School of Law. I had a roommate from the University of Buffalo that had gone to university, was going to University of San Diego, and he had a room available. And I quit my job, drove my car home from Buffalo to New York, left the car in the driveway, and said, Mom, I'm going to California. I took my bicycle and a duffel bag and haven't returned. <laughs> but you have a very specific focus in your practice, in your law practice. Have you always been a trademark and patent attorney? I've always been a business attorney. And trademark can come within that category because businesses are trying to either obtain a patent or to brand their business. I had started out at Mailboxes, et cetera, which is now called the UPS store. And when I was there, I was basically like a general counsel referring to a lot of different areas. So I was dealing with contracts, small and minor litigation, bankruptcy of franchisees when it happened, trademarks around the world. At that time, this was pre-1991. So in 1991, the United States of America adopted the Madrid Protocols. And the Madrid Protocols allow you to register for a trademark anywhere in the world. Prior to that, and when I was started out in my career, we did not have, we're not a participant in the Madrid Protocol, and so therefore we have to locate attorneys in every country in the world. And since we were selling master licenses and agreement to use the mailbox, etc. name in foreign countries, we couldn't sell somebody the right if we didn't own the mark in that country. So there's over 200 countries in the world and I was corresponding with attorneys from anywhere from Canada to Tanzania to Brazil to Vietnam. Wow. So is there a like a uh, landmark case that you've ever been a part of that you could share details with? Probably the cases that I've dealt with aren't along the line, trademark per se. I have been involved in cases, for instance, when mailboxes, etc., was taken over by UPS, United Parcel Service, there was a situation where the franchisee had a franchise agreement to use the name mailboxes, etc. When UPS took over, they wanted to change the name to UPS to be the UPS store and get discounts. Well, franchisees that had signed on with mailbox, etc., some of those franchisees were in areas where Federal Express, DHL, or Airborne, and Airborne was around back in those days, they all wanted to continue to sell those type of overnight services and products and they were making good money, and most of their clients were from that area. So they didn't want to give up the name Mailbox, such as to become UPS, because UPS wasn't very big in that area. So they actually filed a lawsuit, class action suit almost, against UPS. But I was really involved in a big case that's really very, very, very technical, and there's something called declared value. And so when you sell, when you buy, you know, when you go to the UPS store or something, and you say, hey, listen, you know, I want to get covered for $10,000 or whatever, you're really not getting insurance. Insurance is really only obtainable through a private policy that you have or, or through, you know, you really can't get insurance, okay? Uh, if the post office allows you to get insurance, but nobody else does. And really what it is is it's something called declared value. And you declare a value of how much the valuation of the product is, but you still have to prove it, and it's not the same as insurance. So therefore, even if the item is damaged, doesn't mean you're going to get paid back for the money. So that was a big case. I was involved with UPS back in 19, I think it was 1992 was that case. But I've also been involved in other cases. For instance, I was involved in a Bitcoin case where Mt. Gox was the largest Bitcoin company in the world, and people lost $438 million out of from Mt. Gox. And when they closed down the company and wouldn't fund people that had Bitcoin money, 
I actually represented the defendant and I prevailed. So <laughs> I go both, I've been on both sides of the equation. Wow. So, you know, not a lot of people know about Bitcoin or it seems to be like in some ways people are fascinated with it. In some ways people are clueless about it. I mean, is it an actual factual currency? Well, it depends on how you're defining the word currency. I mean, if currency is you can trade and buy and sell products and services, then technically it would be a currency. I define currency more like in its more traditional form. And so I believe currency is more a government-backed situation where the government is putting up a and uh, something in value and saying you can use that, that, that thing that we print and use it for things. Bitcoin, you would have to define it currency as anything that you exchange good services for. And it's not like, for instance, if you go to a currency table, you know, you convert U.S. dollars. You can't convert U.S. dollars to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is more of a private wallet situation whereby you're actually buying it from some entity. And uh, right. for instance, in currency, you can always, you know, tangibly exchange it. Uh, even in a devaluation situation, you cannot really do that with Bitcoin. It's up to wherever you have the Bitcoin with. So my definition of currency is more traditional, and so therefore it has to be backed by a government, per se, or not even backed by, but you know, more freely exchangeable, whereas Bitcoin is more private. Yeah, I saw a, an article not so long ago where someone was offering like this huge reward because he had accidentally thrown away his hard drive and then it was backed up on all the Bitcoin that he had and I think it was like, you know, millions of dollars in Bitcoin had gotten thrown away on his hard drive and he was paying a reward and he was trying to get people to let him look through the landfill and everything else. I mean, it was a really crazy story. That's not throwing away when it went to the landfill. That's pretty far. I mean, I don't know how much money it would be worth for me to dig through a landfill, but they, but he was, they did not honor his request to do that. So I think he was pretty frustrated, but you know, who knows? There's other stories about Bitcoin too, where I know people that were early investors in Bitcoin and then they tried to, then went up a lot of value and they tried to sell it and it wasn't as liquid and yeah, stocks and bonds or, or cash. And so therefore, you know, he was waiting and waiting and waiting. He was waiting six months to sell it. And he didn't understand that when you buy Bitcoin, you know, you think that you can just freely exchange it. And sometimes it's on how big the exchange you're on. And that's the thing. It's with a private company and the exchange you're with that's going to determine how quickly and how much you can get, quickly as you can. So you and I both have worked with lots of businesses, lots of startups. And one of the things that I get asked so frequently when building and helping build brands for new businesses is about trademarking. So I want to make sure that we get to cover what your area of expertise, and although we know you have many, and talk about how important it is for a trademark for a business. But also, one of the questions that I think is important is, like, when is it the right time to get a trademark for your business? So is it, you know, in your startup, like when you're very first starting up, before you actually start up, or do you already need to be in business before you can get one? So what would you recommend if you're starting a business right now and, and are looking at having your brand trademarked? First of all, a trademark, is something used to identify a good. A service mark is something used to identify a service. A trademark itself, it's not that you go ahead and go to the trademark office and get it registered. There are certainly many benefits by doing that. But trademark is established, created by usage. So if you started in 1680 in, um, in Plymouth Rock area 
and you started a, uh, you know, a stone business, okay, and your product was a stone, and you've been using that since 1681, all right, and you've never, ever had it registered, okay, it still is a trademark. The difference is, is that when you get your mark registered with the U.S. United States Patent and Trademark Office, you get certain remedies that you would not get if you didn't have it registered. The biggest remedy you you get are attorney's fees in filing a infringement case. So if you have a stone in 1661 and 81, and then you have your advertising, you find out sometime in 2019 somebody in the United States is using a stone for a telephone service, whatever, and you were using it that way, then you can file a infringement action, but you cannot collect attorney fees because it is not a registered mark. There are also other remedies that you are not able to collect. The, 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 the benefit of filing for registration with the USPTO is, one, they will do a preliminary clearance, not a guaranteed clearance, but a preliminary clearance to see what other marks are registered. You will be able to collect attorney fees if you have to go after somebody that's infringing or using your mark. And another benefit is you can have the R with the circle next to your name to show everybody, hey, it is registered, to let the world know that it is registered. And a couple of other benefits and remedies, including in filing a infringement action that is quicker and able to do in federal court, et cetera, et cetera. So there are many benefits to registering, but you do not get a trademark just by picking out a name, okay? You get a trademark by using a name, and after you use that name, from the time period that you start began using that name in a specific category, okay, if you are the first person or first company to be using that, then you will have trademark rights over another. So whether or not you're registered or not won't matter. However, if somebody did get it registered 20 years ago, and you've been using it for 100 years and never got it registered, you will have a problem because you have waited probably too long. You really want to, if you want to go after and file your mark, you really should do it within five years of somebody else using your mark so you can try to get their mark canceled. So I was made aware of this through a petition, actually, that someone requested that I signed. And from what I understand, Apple can be really big bullies when it comes to defending their trademark. For example, this particular petition that was sent to me was for a small business whose logo had a pear in it. Not an apple, but a pear. And they were receiving cease and desist orders from Apple for them to not use the pair in their logo. Is that, how is that even possible? Well, so there's a couple of triggers. First of all, one, you're not talking about Apple the name. You're talking about Apple the logo. Okay? So that's a different category right there. Okay. Two, any trademark, the definition isn't whether or not it's the same. That's not. The definition. The definition comes down to, is it confusingly similar to another mark? So if the apple and the pear could be, when people look at it, they could say, well, oh, it gives me the impression that it's an apple, or, you know, I can't see the distinction between the apple and the pear, and I'm confused by it. Well, then apple will definitely prevail. That's one. Two, apple has to be strong about going after things of that nature, because if you do not go after every single instance, Okay, then you have an issue called abandonment. And if you abandon it by not following through or pursuing an action after a company that has a pair that may look like an apple, then they will lose that ability to do so in the future. 
So that's, I understand you think it's bullying because it's a big, huge company, but it's also partially because they don't want to be considered to have abandoned their trademarks. Now, again, if you have a bite out of an apple and a bite out of a pear, you may feel that way, but it's really going to come down to a survey of a thousand people. And if people think that, oh, I thought it was the Apple company and they just had another product or service, well then, without a doubt, they will prevail. Right. No, I mean, I can see that side of it. But that brings me to a bigger question, which is you never really know where a company is going to go. I mean, when Steve Jobs created Apple, it was in his basement, right? So, or in his garage. And then, garage. You know, obviously one of the most recognizable brands in the world today. But as a small business, you have so many other startup expenses. You're just trying to, in some cases, you're just trying to keep the power on. So when does there, is there a tipping point? Is there a balance where you can strike to say, okay, I need to invest in this before I invest in everything else that I do? Or do you need to have it be in use for a while, like in order to then file? And it's just a website, like a .com. If you have a live website with a .com, does that qualify as in use? Well, first of all, you've got a whole bunch of questions there. There's a multiple questions. So I'm going to go backwards here. So first of all, in June of 2020, long, 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 long time ago, seven months, eight months, so the United States Supreme Court, the first case that the United States Supreme Court ever heard live after COVID, where it was on Zoom, where people were able to listen to the arguments because they previously had not been able to do it, was the United States Patent and Trademark Office was attacked by Booking.com. And Booking.com, that exact issue came up. Booking.com, they had applied for a trademark. And because Booking is the same thing as reservations or getting a name, they said that you could not get Booking.com registered because it was descriptive of the exact specific purpose for what their name was. So, like, airplane could not get a trademark in the word airplane because it was exactly on point. Or something similar to airplane could not get registered because it's describing the service if it was in the actual airplane. Well, in this case, Booking.com, the United States Patent and Trademark Office rejected the application after numerous back and forth stating that Booking.com was descriptive of the service because you could book a hotel, book a flight, book this, and that's exactly what they were doing. So it was descriptive of the service, which is one of the criteria why you cannot get a mark registered. In this case, went to the Supreme Court, and the United States Supreme Court ruled in June of this year, 2020, I should say, that, sorry, but Booking.com is not the same thing as Booking. And if it was Booking, they would have re- the rejection would have been upheld. But they said Booking.com was different, and therefore you could get Booking.com registered. And they allowed it to be registered, and Booking.com became a registered trademark. So that's one point. Two, the other point is a website is acceptable for a specimen, which... When you file a trademark, one of the items you have to file when you file your trademark application is a specimen of use, how it's actually used on the goods and services. So you could get the label from the Heinz ketchup, okay, but you could also now, today, a perfectly acceptable specimen would be a picture of the Heinz bottle being sold on a website as long as when you print it out, it meets certain specifications and has the date on the printed page, that is an acceptable specimen. So website is a perfectly acceptable specimen for showing usage. Now, there are two ways you can get a mark registered, okay? When you get a mark registered, you can apply for the mark as used in commerce, which was specifically the only way you could do this up until the Madrid Protocols in 1991. Or you now, since that time frame, have also been able to file for a mark called intent to use. 
That means you're not currently using the mark in commerce in, to do business, but you intend on using it. So therefore, you go through the same process of applying for mark intent to use as not intent to use, but you cannot get your mark registered until you are actually using the mark in service and you ha- actually have 10% proof. And so therefore, you don't absolutely positively have to be using the mark in commerce. The last point I think you made was, you know, regarding business. You know, when do you want to do that? Well, that's a question for your budgeting and what you're trying to do, right? Marks are not based on, you know, nobody knew what McDonald's was in 1940. Maybe the two McDonald's brothers and a couple of people in San Bernardino knew about it, but nobody really knew about McDonald's. And Ray Kroc. Ray Kroc knew about it. <laughs> not until 1952. <laughs> oh, okay. Gotcha. Right. Okay, so not 1940. In 1940, okay, gotcha. nobody knew what McDonald's was. So the point is that you have to be able to... You know, you have to understand that you're building a brand. At some point in time, you want to protect it. I think the earlier the better because it's not just with the patent and trademark office that you want to get registered. It's that you want other people to prevent other people from trying to get take them off. So I would say the earliest point that you can financially afford it, I think it's important to do. But that's up to everybody else how big they want to make their brand and how important it's going to be to them in the business. And for instance, if you're in the franchise business, you are licensing, giving away your rights to use the mark to somebody else. And if you're doing that, you don't want to end up with, oh, my God, you know, 20 years later, you didn't do anything about it, and now somebody's suing you for infringement, and you've got all these franchisees. That's a pretty big risk. So certainly the type of industry you're in is certainly going to determine also when you want to get it registered. But to me, I'm a lawyer. So for me, the earliest you can, not because I'm a lawyer and collecting money on, on trademarks to, to protect you. I think I answered that. If there's any other part of that question, I let me know. Well, I'm going to extend it past into social media because, you know, with Producer Podcast, we are building brands for people who don't already have them because they start podcasts that are associated with a brand new concept or they are creating a podcast that's an extension of their already existing brand. So, and podcasting is kind of the wild, wild west right now. So maybe we should start with that question first, which is, this actually happened to me with a client. Between the time they hired us to the time they launched their show, they had a name for their podcast. And it's about a 60-day window to get a show launched. So within that 60-day window, two other podcasts launched a podcast with the same name. Because in Apple Podcasts, they don't, you don't have that exclusivity. Like you could have three shows, because this happened to my client, three shows that have the exact same name. But they had already purchased the name of the show.com and they had already purchased the name of the show podcast.com. So in that case, if there was to be an issue because the other two shows went live on Apple Podcasts before their show, but they had reserved the domain for the name and the, and the podcast prior to any, either of those other two shows going live. So if you were an attorney and you were representing my client, who would win? Well, there's thousands of other factors. <laughs> on the limited facts you gave me, the client does have a problem. The problem is why? Trademark rights are established based on usage, not based on registration. Okay? The fact you can get, I can go out there, I might be able to go out there tomorrow and even buy Nike.com if Nike didn't get it registered, right? Uh, that doesn't mean I own Nike, all right? The fact of the matter is, if, if they can prove that they had sometimes a way to prove that they were actually using the name. Maybe they had an ad in the New York Times. Maybe they had an article presented in an entrepreneurial magazine and the name was out there and they could prove that they were using it before the other company. 
Yes, but otherwise, they're going to have trouble. That's so interesting, though, because if someone was to listen to either of those three shows, all named the same thing, all different concepts, by the way, but then they went to the Internet and they plugged in the name of the show, it's going to go to my client's podcast site, not the other two sites. So I don't know. Right. It's not, But it's not in dispute. I'm just saying this This was something was the first-time experience that I had as a producer, and it was shocking to see that that could all happen within such a short window of time. That's how much creativity, I guess, gets created simultaneously. Well, it's also similar in the recording business, right? You can go to ASCAP, okay, and, and ASCAP and then get try to get a song you know, listed there in the catalog, right? That's a similar situation. And yet, even though you get it there, that doesn't mean that you have the copyright if somebody else went to the copyright office and got it registered and established that that title was prior to yours, even though you got it registered in Basket. Because each one has a different database that they're looking at. And it's not, it's going to appear in the database. That's also one of the reasons why I advise clients, and I have to say that probably 98% of my clients refuse to do so, but all clients are advised to get a trademark search done before they file. And the reason why they don't do it is if you go to a real big nationwide company, they're going to charge you seven, $800 to do a search, but guess what? They're going to search everything. So they would pick up the podcast that on those, the other two podcast companies. They're going to pick up a newspaper article in a small regional paper. They're going to pick up a DBA in Vermont and every single corporation LLC database, every state trademark database, and every MUSPTO. They do a full-blown comprehensive search. And if you're really launching a big company or a nationwide company, you really should do that. But most people say, nah, I don't want to spend the money. i got to learn my money. And when you talk about eight dollars or $900, and then you find out two years later you get sued or the name has to change, it's a lot more money to do that than it is to get it done right. But most people, and I represent a million-dollar company, say, sorry, I'm not going to spend my money on it. Well, I just wanted to continue our conversation about this trademark situation because you've given me so many good insights on that. So I have another client. It's like I'm getting all this free advice for my clients. So I have another client who has a podcast. So they're launching a podcast, but they discovered when they decided on the name of their show, they discovered that there was another magazine that was named the same thing as what they wanted to name their podcast. But since a magazine is not the same as a podcast, does that mean that they're two separate categories and that they could name it the same as the magazine? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, is the magazine a registered trademark? I'd like to know that even though it is a trademark, and even though they could present problems down the road, I would want to know whether or not the USPTO would be potentially allowing them to. The other thing is I kind of believe that a podcast and a magazine are both in the media platform. And by both being in the media platform, that it is kind of in the same classification. And so, therefore, I think it would be difficult. Now, the USPTO may not know about that if the magazine has not been registered. But that doesn't mean that there isn't an infringement. Because if the magazine's been around and now you're coming up with, hey, you know, your uh, podcast is Entrepreneur, and it's been an Entrepreneur Magazine, well, that's going to present a problem. And if Entrepreneur Magazine wants to go after them, they most definitely could. But also Entrepreneur Magazine, I'm sure, is a registered trademark. So USPTO would not even allow that to go any further. If it was not registered, though, there's a chance they might be able to get it passed. But getting it passed doesn't mean anything because, again, if somebody can establish they'd be using choir, in the same category, they're going to prevail. And I think that whether or not, you know, 
to me, magazine or podcast, they're both in the same category. So it brought up two or three different scenarios that have to do with trademarking and podcasts. Where do you think the future with podcasting is going to go in terms of being able to claim names? And, you know, is it too soon to tell? Or, like, you know, when the people went crazy getting domains when the URLs first came available. I know in the radio business, it was like everybody got, they just went and bought Magic 102 or they went and bought, you know, Country 101.5 or something like that. But with podcasting, well, do you see all, that what could happen? Well, first of all, you're not supposed to be buying names just because you want to hog them or own them. You have to have a basis for it. So if you go out and you bought Magic 102 and there is a Magic 102 radio station, they're going to be under cyber squatting law. They will be allowed to get that name back. So you can't just get somebody's name. That happened a lot in the beginning. People, the big companies weren't going out there and registering their marks yet through the .com. So that's one thing. Two, by the way. Yeah, that really did happen. That really did happen to us, by the way. That's why I used that as a real life example. That really did happen. Well, yeah, and I and I had a client that was a, a tax for cyber squatting, and he had like AOLL dot com, you know, <laughs> like a derivative of that. And that's clearly that's the problem. You can't trade off of a derivative or something else. There is one case though, and I've got about thirty seconds. So Adobe was filed a or Acrobat, one of those companies filed a lawsuit, and the guy's name was actually Adobe, and so he went to court and he was able to prevail because he said he got it for his personal name, not for the company name. But that was a rare, uh-uh. rare circumstance. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time left. We're going to have to kind of wrap this up pretty quickly, but essentially, you do not want to have a mark that somebody else has used in the past, and if you do, you're going to face infringement cases, and if the mark is registered, they are going to collect attorney fees. And if you have a case against an attorney and you're going to spend $50,000 in legal fees just to, to do that, you're going to have to come up with a different name. So the best bet, best way to do things, come up with your own name, unique, and build it yourself. You listen to the Ask Brian Radio Show, KHS 1220, 98.1 FM. Like no other state in the world! Thank you for tuning in to the Ask Brian Radio Show. You can listen to us every Thursday on KTHS AM 1220 and FM 98.1 or via Facebook Live or anytime wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit askbrian.com to join the conversation and ask us your business questions and we'll answer them on our next episode. That's askbrien.com.